Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits, and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey gang, have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment, and it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative, but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them, truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some uh, great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. I've worn three uniforms in my life. Amazing green one, because when I joined the Army, we didn't have cams. So it was a green uniform back in 1983. I uh, joined as a soldier at Kapuka. I did that for a couple of years. I wanted to do a PTI course and there wasn't any PTI physical training instructors courses scheduled once I'd gotten to about three years and I was getting a bit bored and my CEO said, oh, you're such a bad soldier, you need to go to Duntroon, (laughs) which obviously was a bit of a joke. People usually get a bit of a laugh out of it. So then I went to Duntroon. I didn't do that well academically. I had to do a lot of remedial training, mm. um, but I did pretty well in the field and enjoyed, you know, being out in bush in the bush. So I graduated, went back to Signals Corps. I was in Signals as a soldier, and then I spent oh, probably another 14, 15 years. I did 18 years all up, serving in a range of different roles. I did the SAS selection course in 1989 as a 24-year-old lieutenant which was probably a bad idea. I finished it, but at the end they said, come back and do it again. Mm. I was actually posted posted at 152 because not many signals officers wanted to go there or and or do the course, whereas I wanted to do it, absolutely. Mm. So they, they said, you can stay and be a black hat officer. And I said, well, no, I don't want to. If I'm not if I'm not suitable now to wear the beret, then I shouldn't be commanding troops. So they freaked out and I said, well, no, I, I, I don't want to stay. I'll come back in two years and do it again. So anyway, main thing was I finished it and I loved it. I learned a lot. It's probably one of the best things I ever did. Mm. And, and I've still got a lot of friends because you know what it's like when you finish, it sort of builds that bond mm. of you know who you are and some of the people. So did that, then did a whole lot of other jobs in the military and we got out settled in Melbourne and I changed uniform for a corporate uniform and I worked in a couple of big a big American company called Cisco mm. had a global role working with a whole lot of defense agencies around the world and it was great a lot of stress a lot of travel a lot of learning about leadership different to the military and then I went to another job where I got poached which was totally atrocious and toxic it's the biggest ambush I worked walked into in my life if you want to use an analogy, and I did that for 14 months and I had to leave and I was basically suicidal at the end of it. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah, it was just horrible. It was the worst decision I've ever made in my life in that job and basically I left with some severe health issues. And then I had to, I basically slept for six months, changed what I was doing and had to really think and I ended up changing my uniform from a suit and polished shoes to lycra and training gear. And for the last six years, I've built a new career and passion and lifestyle around putting my health first Mm. and helping other people change their health. So I did an ICF, International Coaching Federation, coaching course, which is a pretty full-on course that requires 
auditing requires you to be listened to and recorded when you coach clients. Mm. Probably the best credential you can have as an executive coach. So I did that and I'm a PCC level coach, which is a second level coach there. But at the same time, people were asking me to go and work in companies and put the suit back on and go Mm. and coach in big organisations. But that just sort of took me back to where I was before and mentally I didn't want to go back to that because it brought back a lot of things that happened to me in that last job. Mm. So I couldn't I couldn't actually at that stage six years ago go and put a suit on it and go and work in a corporate environment. It was just too hard mentally for me. So I thought, what can I use those coaching skills for? I was pretty passionate about running marathons and training and I think that old fire of wanting to be a PTI back when I was, you know, 19 or 20 in the Army came to me. So I then did my whole Cert 4, Cert 3 personal training, group fitness training instructors course. I did the USA and Australian triathlon coaching course programs and that became what I do. So for the last six years I've totally changed my life from going and being a highly stressed, highly under pressure individual to someone that focuses on their health, coaching people around low carb, around preparation for racing, triathlon, marathon. And I do do some executive coaching, but it's not in a company, in a suit. It's the way I want to do it, dealing with clients that understand that, you know, we can do things a bit differently. I don't even know where to start with unpacking all that, Andre. Like, um, I'll start at the beginning. So you changed over to MSBS, I take it? No, I stayed in DFRDB. I, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, I had an interview with a brigadier as my exit interview. So I left the army and I t- took long service leave. My, my CO said, well, you've only got two years to go till you can get your pension. Mm. And I said, yeah, I know. But I don't want to go to staff college, right? They, they wanted me to go to staff college and then go to a demanding staff job. And I'm like, well, look, frankly, you know, I'm not the best at writing. I left school at year 11. I didn't do HSC. I hated studying. And I'm like, I can't go and write all these essays and papers and all this crap. It's like mm. I'm not interested in that. I like being out in the field, getting dirty, jumping out of helicopters, driving trucks, doing all that stuff. So – that's a bit of a divergence. But so I took this job and my CEO gave me long service leave. And I thought, well, I'll do this job in Cisco. And if it doesn't work, mm. well, then I can always come back. And the thing is, it worked. It was fantastic. It was a good job, huh? Great. I earned great money and I built a new career. So I ended up resigning and I took my DFRDB and I never looked back. Fair enough. And then obviously, you don't want to talk too much about the crap job, but it does surprise me how many people just settle for you know, shit jobs that is slowly eating away at their mental health, physical health. They do it, they they think they're doing it, you know, to, to feather their nest for retirement. They get to retirement if if they do, if they make it that far, and then, then they die, you know? Well, look, you know, I won't say the company, but mm. I, I was in. People will find out if they want to look. But, you know, six years ago, this, this month, six years ago, I was standing on Parliament Station in Melbourne in the underground and I almost jumped in front of a train. Mm. I mean, and for someone who's got the sort of mental strength that you've got to do what you've done to be to be in that position, you know, it's, you've been through some, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's obviously one of those jobs that was just too demanding and, and you were allowing yourself to be owned by it, you know. Well, I was being I was being bullied essentially. Yeah, so that's 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 what happened. Yeah, I guess I was trying to skirt around that, but yeah, that's no, no but and that's, that's right. And, and my wife was like, "Oh, you're tough. You can handle mm. it. You can sort this out." But the thing is, I couldn't. It was like trying to change Martians to Earthlings, and there was mm. no way that was going to happen. Yeah. You know? Let's talk triathlon. Talk to me about some triathlon performances that you've had for starters, because I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a triathlon geek. Okay, so last year was my second year in the sport. So I had a background of marathon running. Mm. So I started marathons in, I think, 2011 was my first marathon. And Mm. I did marathons for, I've done about 12, I think now. Did them since 2011. Mm. My coach said, you know, you've got a big aerobic capacity. You know, you can't keep running 70Ks a week. You'll just get injured as you get older. And I think you should do triathlon. So I, I, for my 50th birthday, I bought my bike as a present and I thought I'll do this for a year or two and just see what happens. And in my first year, I think I did two races. My second year, I think I did three races. Last year, 
Oh, no, actually my second year, which was last year, was my second year because I'm 53 this year, I did five races. I did um, mm. Geelong, Bustleton, Cairns. I qualified for the world champs in Bustleton. In half, I only do half Ironmans, right? I'll do fulls eventually. But I did Geelong, Bustleton, qualified for world champs. I did Boulder in the States where I did 5.06. I did a 2.25 on the, 225 on the bike mm. in Boulder. And then four weeks later, I did the world champs in Chattanooga which was quite a hilly course, and some arsehole stole my Garmin head unit off my bike no. uh, in the transition, so I had no idea that's of just, power. That's just made me furious. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no idea of speed or power or cadence or anything while we're in Chattanooga in that race. So I did five races last year, and I, based on the Ironman ranking system in Australia, I was 10th in Australia. Oh, cool. Not 10th. Not, mm. not Overall, because not everyone uses that system, but mm. in my second year in the sport, that's what I've done. Mm. Um, so this this year, I've done two races, and I ripped my left calf in Bustleton. They cancelled the swim, and they put a three k run on at the start instead of the swim. Mm. And I was fifth out of ninety in my age group in that first run. And then I got on the bike. The bike was going extremely well. Came back in, and I think I was about twelfth. At the start of the run, I caught up a few places, but at 7Ks, my calf popped. Oh. So, I'm, yeah, so I was supposed to go to Cairns. That got cancelled. We're now doing uh, Taupo in New Zealand in December, and my recovery's going well, my running's going well. Mm. Yeah. I've got a race in November, start of November. It's a strange one, though, because I thought I was going back to do the Dubai International Triathlon again, which is the, the half they used to run there before Ironman came to Dubai. And the distances are 1.5 kilometre swim, 80 kilometre ride, and 10 kilometre run, which actually suits me a little bit, a little bit better because I won't fade so much at the end of that run. All oh, right, yeah, okay. What I find is I actually pass heaps of people in the run because that's my background and mentally that's my game. So I'll, mm. I'll I come out maybe 85th in the swim out of 120, but by the time I get off the bike, I'm in the 30s. And then by the time we finish the run, I'm in between 10 and 15, 10 and 18. Yeah, so the DIT that I did in 2014, I did the 1.9-kilometre swim in 33 minutes, the bike in 2 hours 51. It's not my strongest leg, the bike. Yeah. And then I think the first 15 kilometres I did in 1 hour 15 and then took about 30 minutes to do the last 5K. I just all, yeah. It just all went south from there, 1.53 in the end. So, yeah, it was, look, five hours, 21, it was respectable enough, you know, sort of self-training at the time. But one of the things that I found, and I mean, there's so many topics that I can pick your brains at, but one of the things I found with lead up to that race, it was a hot day. That day was really hot. And one of the things I had been doing was after work, doing a lot of, you know, math type, which we'll talk about in a minute, math type training. So I would do things like, you know, eight, 800s with a minute, yeah, what started with two minutes rest in between sets became a minute 30 between sets became a minute between sets. And those 800s were about four minute 10 pace, let's say. But it was being done in 40 degree heat, you know, where I would be at the end of it, I would be throwing up sometimes dry reaching. Yeah. And this, this went on for, for about 10 weeks. I did stuff like that. So I might do three of those sort of runs a week. Sometimes it was 800. Sometimes it was tempo running. Sometimes it was just long, slow distance, but most, the most, most of my um, focus was around sort of high intensity interval training or, or, you know, that sort of stuff. And then the, the math runs like, you know, keeping pace for keeping heart rate at 140 beats a minute for, for an hour and then seeing how far I could go. Yeah. Which is probably pure math, isn't it, Emma? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you want to start talking about math now? Yeah, I think that's. A, I think it's an interesting thing that a lot of a lot of self trained athletes probably don't understand. If you want to, if you want to run faster, you could run the distance and do it all the time, and you would slowly get incrementally faster. Or you could be more, you know, scientific about it, be smarter about it, and increase your aerobic capacity and increase your increase the intensity. <laughs> and then go and apply yourself back to that distance and you'll be faster over that distance. I, I assume that's what MAF does. Yeah, it does essentially. What, what MAF is the maximum aerobic function method and it was developed by Phil Maffetone. He is a world-renowned doctor and trainer. He's trained people like... And a good Ryan runner. Allen, 
Mark Allen and mm. a right, you know, range of really amazing people that have won the New York Marathon, etc. And I've been doing this math method now for four years. And before it, my resting heart rate was 65, and now it's 39 to 41. Mm. Now we were all taught. This is the thing, you know, for the military people listening, and I'm assuming looking at your podcast and and the website, most people would be ex-military or emergency services. We're all taught that you have to always go hard or go home or you have to smash yourself in every session. It might be different now, but, you know, I'm 53. So when I was in the Army, and you're a little bit younger, you're quite a bit younger than me, you would have still been told, you know, you've always got to smash yourself and if you don't, you're not working hard enough. And we're also told to use heart rate zones based on 220 minus your, you know, age is your max and, and then all these zones that are estimated or you do a heart rate max test and a lab gives you a set of heart rate zones Mm. well that's what i did for years and it got me nowhere apart from being injured because i was you know following this conventional stupidity of running in zone four and zone five and zone three and i'd always come home trashed and i felt great from the endorphin rush but it was flipping hard now what math does is math says that to build your health and fitness long-term and reduce inflammation in your body and reduce injury and reduce stress, you need to run at 180 minus your age. Now, for me, that's 127, but you can plus, there's a certain range of numbers you plus or minus depending on if you've had major illnesses or if you're super fit. So as an example, for me, it's 132 beats. Now, I can run a marathon in 3.39 at 125 average heart rate and talk and finish the run and not even be sore, and I'm 53. Mm. I, I, I could probably do it in 3.30. If my calf doesn't play up and I do the Melbourne full this year, I'll do a 3.30 and my average heart rate will probably be 128, and, and that's at five-minute pace for a marathon for 53 years old, and I'm not a skinny guy. You know, I'm pretty solid. Was that 180 minus your, minus your age? Yeah, 180 yeah. minus your age, right? So the the thing is whenever we run, whether we're sprinting, whether we're running tempo running or whether we're doing long, slow distance, the aerobic energy system is used as the predominant energy system for most of our running apart from when we're maybe doing 30-second or 20-second sprint work. But people don't build it enough. They spend a lot of time in this grey zone which is – it's not hard enough and it's not easy enough. It's sort of like that. It's reasonably hard and uncomfortable because we all like that. You know, it's not like we're sprinting 400-metre efforts where we're throwing up mm. and, and we're not running slow. And that running in that grey zone is the thing that we call chronic cardio, right? Mm. It, just, it can damage the heart long-term. It elevates cortisol. It makes our body want to burn sugar instead of fat, and fat is a clean fuel, which we can talk about in terms of nutrition as well. But it's the thing that leads to chronic mm. illness, chronic ill health, injuries, and, and a lot of stress. But we have to change the way we think about – like when people start doing math, sometimes I prescribe for some of my triathletes. I've got a girl in America I'm working with. She runs for seven minutes at math, and as soon as her heart rate gets at math – and it starts going above it, she stops and walks. Mm. You try telling that to some special forces guy or some, mm. you know, army recruit that they have to actually stop and walk. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, I found I found running at at the time it was 140. I found running at, actually it was 141. I found running at 141 beats a minute, yeah, really difficult to do. And and what's difficult about it is obviously you need to, you need to do a proper warm-up, which I never used to do. So things like duck waddles, you know, jumping 50, 50 meter sprints, you know, with rests in between and things like that to actually get the heart rate up already. So it was above 140. Then it would come back down. Then you'd, you'd set your watch, you know, two beats either side of it, maybe, and then just start jogging. And I think the only sort of criticism I have to it is if you do a lot of that work, your stride and, and gait changes on your running. You know, you tend to not run as fast. So that's why I started to implement a lot of, the I can't remember the name for it, but the the eight hundreds, eight by eight hundreds, and and things like that. We have we've got to really stride out. Well, okay, so cadence is another really interesting topic for runners, right? So they say the best cadence is about one eighty, right? So mm. 
the, you know, we used to, I used to think as a runner, you've got to take long steps, right? You've got to have a big cadence, a stride length of 1.1 metres or something like that. Well, what happens is you end up heel striking more when you have a long cadence. You end up putting strain on the part of your hamstring where it joins your glute. So a lot of runners get pain in the bottom of the glute and the top of the hamstring. I don't know the exact muscle name mm. the best with all that because they're stretching out too far. Mm. So if you, someone that runs a cadence of 160 or 170 often show with injuries in the hamstring and, yeah. heel, and their heel striking. Mm. So my average cadence when I'm running at, if I'm running doing interval work at four-minute pace, my cadence is 196 to 200. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which is really fast. But that's that's great because what it does is it puts your center of mass over your foot. Mm. So you're landing midfoot or forefoot and you're not losing the forces pushing you forward. The more you break with your foot out in front and heel strike, the energy comes through your body. And if you're into physics, you know, the energy just stops and hits the ground mm. and you can cause a whole lot of injury. So when we start math training, yeah, you've got to make adjustments slowly to your cadence, but having a higher cadence and a shorter stride length is far more efficient than having a longer step and a slower cadence. But a lot of people don't understand that. And doing drills, doing running drills, mm. doing doing one of the things I do with people as we're trying to change their cadence is say, just every, every kilometre, I want you to pick a 100-metre stretch and increase your cadence by five. Mm. So we're slowly changing the neurological ability of the body to run at that faster cadence because if we make too many changes too quickly, you will get injured. Mm. And I assume you use you're using training peaks or something like that to map progress? No, I, I use a I use a, a thing out of Australia actually, mm. which has quite a few a couple of special forces guys working there actually, mm. uh, called Today's Plan. Mm. It's, it used to be a cycling platform and now they've moved it into multi-sport. It's just brilliant. It's shits all over training. Really? Yeah, the analytical tools are amazing. It's called Today's Plan. It mm. um, has a whole lot of – it can include your running power. So I use a stride-based tool for power-based running and all of that data comes through into Today's Plan as well. Really good visualization. It has the way it calculates your training stress score is different to training peaks. It assigns different training stress score calculations methods to swimming, riding, and running. Yeah, obviously, I get annoyed with the training stress score because you know when I was using training peaks all the time, my fitness was about 90, 80, 80 to ninety, hovering around there. But when I was in good condition, I go back to it now. It's and and it's like nine. And I'm like, yeah, but I just ran a 22-minute 5K. How could someone with a, a fitness level of nine be do, be doing that? Yeah, so obviously there's something in there that I'm missing, but um, yeah. Well, if you haven't been using it, if you haven't been uploading all your data, the fitness calculation, I think it's a TS training stress, uh, TSB I think it's called. I'm still doing a lot more work on all of the different definitions. Mm-hmm. It could be the acute training load, I think. All of those things, if you're not continually to train, mm. the system thinks that your fitness has dropped. Yeah, but there should be some way to get a baseline. Yeah, well, as long as you're still putting data into the system. No, like a, like a test or something like that so you can see what you're, where you're at now compared to where you were back then. I mean, you can, you can take – the data should be as simple as here's what all of the data looked like when I was able to do this and now I go for a run it should be able to see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, well, we, we do a particular 3-9 run using power to mm. build a profile of fitness and you can do that. It's like doing a math test, doing a math test where you run at math and you look at how long does it take you to do those one-kilometre efforts. Mm. That's it. That's a simple test that shows whether your fitness is improving and you can do the same with running on power as well. I have a power meter on my bike and it's been a revelation. In fact, I, I often tell people it's um, it might as well be cheating and um, it's that good. And But I do wonder is is the power meter with the, with the running, is it as good? And, you know, like when I know, I know for a fact that I need to keep my power going up a hill, for instance, I need to be able to keep about 75 to 80% of my FTP on the bike, my functional threshold power. Yeah. Is it the same with 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 running? If you stride up a, a hill, 
does that then have a flow on effect for the rest of the the run is it something that can have as much of an impact as what because the reason you're keeping down to 75 80 percent of your ftp is so you can run off the bike yeah that's a good question so running by power and running riding by power on a bike are probably two of the most amazing tools you can have i use both and I I never run by heart rate because I don't need to because I've got such a big aerobic engine and I can pick my heart rate anyway. But running but what does that what does that mean? You've got a big aerobic engine. So if if you were to if I was to apply that to myself, if I go and do a five kilometer run now, I could have my heart rate at one ninety and maintain that for five kilometers, no worries at all. Is that the same thing? No, you want a lower heart rate. Yeah, like, but my resting heart rate is say forty eight. Yes, but. Here's an analogy. You want to be a Mustang engine and rev it a a thousand revs and get to a hundred k's an hour in three seconds, or do you want to be a Honda Civic and have to rev it ten thousand revs to get to a ten thousand revs to get to a hundred k's in three seconds? What would you prefer, the Mustang or the Honda Civic? I like Mustangs. Right. So (laughs) this is where we need to change. I urge people to change the way we think. So I teach. I teach six or seven group fitness classes mm. every week and people come away from it initially saying what the hell is this guy talking about but by well, after a couple of months they understand it's mm. like it, they're all pushing to say oh flip i got 180 beats a minute i got 190 beats a minute and i'm like great good on you mm. I'm pushing two times more power and my heart rate's 110 yeah but there's a there's a decoupling as well isn't there of the heart rate to effort and that can that can come down to things like you know humidity temperature you know, well, that's what I was going to get into as well in terms of why power is the best measure. Right. But, but not to that extent. Yeah. It shouldn't be that variant. Var- that should right. be not that much variant. So we, the heart can only beat 2 billion times and then it wears out. That's the what the science tells us, right? So why would we want our heart to be beating, having more beats than less? So the more life we can live with the lower heart rate, the better we'll be and the healthier we'll be. Okay, so when you when you're saying you have a big aerobic, big aerobic engine. engine, what you're actually saying is your heart is more efficient. Yeah, you're being more. You just have a bigger stroke, bigger stroke volume. So right. every every beat the heart pumps, it pumps out a lot more blood, which gets more oxygen out into your body. So it doesn't have to work as hard. It's like I, when I did my first lab running test in 2008. They, I got off the treadmill, and this is when I was in that mode of I've always got to run in heart rate zone six. I've always got mm, to run at 170. Mm. They, I got off, and they said to me, Andre, you're like a mini miner engine, but you've got semi-trailer tyres. Mm. We've totally reversed that now to say you've got a V12 engine mm. and your tyres are pretty good, and that's why I spend time in the gym because mm. I don't fatigue aerobically. I don't fatigue cardiovascularly. Mm. I don't fatigue nutritionally. I fatigue sometimes muscularly. Mm. You know, we can fatigue mentally. We can metabolically fatigue if we're fueling on sugar and our body isn't metabolically flexible to burn fat and sugar. Mm. We mentally, metabolically, we generally don't fatigue cardiovascular-wise and then we can fatigue with our legs because our hips drop and we slow down and we because we don't strengthen our legs because we don't spend the appropriate time mm. doing the appropriate exercises in the gym. So back to your question about power, yeah, you've got to take into account whether you're running or riding, what your cadence is, the pressure on your legs, how your legs are pushing up the hill. When you run up a hill based on power, you can manage your power to stay at a certain power level while you run, even though your pace changes. So it's very similar to bike riding. You've got to think mm. about cadence, how your legs are feeling. So you shouldn't be worried about dropping from 4 minute 50 kilometres to 6 minute 30 because you've got a 400 metre hill, for instance. No, you should just... No. no. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it doesn't make... Yeah, and you've got to work out yourself through training and testing. I'm a big one for race rehearsals is riding on similar terrain and knowing what cadence you're going to be in on the certain hills so you don't mentally waste energy worrying about, oh, shit, are my legs going to be fatigued when I get off the bike? You've got to rehearse and practice all of that so all you're thinking about on the day is being in the moment and the process of the race. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now that makes sense. And so, and so you prescribe a lot of math 
running to your triathletes and how many sessions would you say a week would be would be math sort of sessions as opposed to sort of hit or speed sessions oh okay well depending on where the athlete is if mm. if they're combining low carb nutrition and lifestyle with math training it's easier to make the adaptions because the body will burn fat instead of sugar so working in lower heart rates is much easier so you have to do it for longer though right yeah, you do. Mm. Well, yeah, you, you do. So I would say when someone comes to start, you need to get them burning fat. So you do sort of like a six-week block. Mm. I'll often do a six-week block of all all uh, math running, mm. no high intensity at all. Because the minute you get into that grey zone or up into high heart rate, the body then for you know, glycogen for fuel. Days, will be in that stress state and you want the body to be in a calm state. Mm. So it can be quite frustrating for people to do this run, walk, run, walk or, you know, really slow running. Especially if they're on training peaks and they're watching their fitness like plummet. Yeah, well, see, I won't work with people. I only work with people that I think are going to be able to make the change. Yeah, okay. Because you can't have... You've got to really ask people some really deep coaching questions about what's this about and do they want to be healthy or do they want to be fit or do they want to be both because mm. health and fitness are different. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I like to carry some size because I'm, I'm naturally smaller. So I like to carry more size anyway. It's a confidence thing. But I also like to be fast because that's my background. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, and to be fast in triathlon, you need, you generally need to be pretty slight, you know, so it's a, it's a. The, the, the biggest advantage any triathlete can have is what I call body composition. Mm. It's a simple concept, right? You want to produce more power per kilo of body weight on the bike mm. and, and in the run. Mm. And the, the oh, secret yeah. weapon is body composition and getting the right... I've definitely seen that. And what I would see is... And Dubai was a really interesting sort of laboratory because what you would see is a lot of bigger, fatter triathletes. Not not well... Not very... You're allowed to say that. Not very, not very fit triathletes who are finishing down the back end. Yeah. And, and they loved a good social ride on the weekend. And, you know, social ride, you can be a big guy and go for a social ride and not change your body composition at all and be quite competitive, actually. I know some big riders who are very fast when they're on the bike. On the flat. On the flat. Yep. Not on the hills. Uh, yeah, you'd be surprised. But anyway, yeah, okay. probably yeah. you probably wouldn't. But then again, Dubai doesn't have that many hills, right? No. Then you've got the sort of really, really skinny triathletes that are in the, that are finishing in the middle in around where I was finishing, you know, in around the five-hour mark. And then the guys who were breaking five hours, they're, they're a different, they're a whole different, I mean, you know, physiological makeup. They were they were stronger and lean, you know. So they were, yeah, you could definitely see that. You know, very few of the people finishing at the top end didn't have some sort of muscle composition or they were, or they were tall and muscly and but still, you know, low body fat. Then you had me in the middle. Uh, but yeah i think and and again there's other reasons why people's you know physical composition changes as well cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com when you when you're in your in your forties and got a lot of disposable income in Dubai, I'm sure, but um or or anywhere really, but the the one thing I did notice was the long slow distance seems to have had its day for sake of time's sake. You know, like you're out there doing four hour runs or you know a lot of the guys are still doing things like five hour rides and stuff like that for for Ironman, which just for me, if I'm on the bike for longer than really for longer than two hours, you know. I don't know. It just it just used to bore the hell out of me. Well, you're not a professional triathlete, right? No, so, and it would bore the crap out of me. So you know, I run three times a week, but two of those are brick sessions. Mm. So I, I, you know, my thing is three times a week running. I swim about four times because there's no stress in the swimming, and I ride three times a week. And you know, the longest ride I'll do. 
before a race is two and a half hours, because on my races, are, you know, it's only 90 Ks, right? So I'm trying to do about 225. So the longest ride I'll do is probably two hours, and that'll be on a wind trainer, or I'm doing 80K time trials six weeks out from a race. I'll go to Ballarat, and I'll do 80K time trials around Ballarat Lake, mm. practice everything. I won't be on a bike, but then I'll go and run off the bike. So mm. brick sessions are really important because you want to have your body be able to cope and know what it's going to feel like and know that you're in 86 cadence or 96 cadence and you're pushing this much power and you know what it's going to feel like. But when you get off the bike and be confident to be able to run at a power or a cadence or a pace. Mm. So in terms of the time crunching, right, one of the things I've found and what we're finding more and more is we can train less and get stronger and faster. Once again, that sounds counterintuitive. No, not to me it doesn't. Right. Well, great. So, mm. so you know, having a wind trainer and mentally being able to ride on a wind trainer for an hour and a half or two hours is much more efficient. We get a higher training stress score mm. than riding outside for three hours or three and a half hours. Like I never do a social ride. Mm. I've never gone on a social ride mm. because – I don't drink coffee. I don't want to go and sit and eat pastries, right? Because <laughs> that's what a lot of social rides do. And people would criticize me for not wanting to have a pastry or a coffee when I'm riding. But it's more important to me to be, I want to be sports specific. So I have to do intervals. I have to do sets. I have to do specific drills when I'm riding. And you don't do that in a social ride. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, the, the one thing, Andre, that I would say, you know, just, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I'm, very impressed with how you apply yourself from a, a mental standpoint to the sport. One thing I would say to people listening is that if that's you, if you're that social rider, you know, at least you're doing it. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like it's the same with it's the same with when people ask me what's the best sport that I should do to you know to get fit or you know whatever. And I say, well, whatever it is that you love, do that to start with. You know, just yeah. do some, just do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind a, a social ride to build volume because it bores me otherwise, you know. But I also I think there's a it's a real weapon to be able to walk out and get onto a you know, a kicker trainer and hand yourself your ass out in the shed for an hour as well, or the or the rowing machine or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, every everyone's different. I mm. just don't I don't like riding on the road because I think it's dangerous. Mm. That's why I choose to ride on a wing trainer. Mm. And the only time I ride on the road is is when I'm doing time trials around Albert Park. Mm. Ballarat Lake, mm. or I ride up King Lake Hill, and it's never at five thirty in the morning. It's always pro hours in the middle of the day. Beautiful quiet day, right? Because I don't, yeah. I don't want to. I want to limit as much danger as possible. Oh, and you know, one thing. I mean, I loved riding in Dubai. The social aspect to it aside, which was which was pretty great. The fact that they've got a couple of hundred kilometers worth of designated roads out into the desert is mm. it's safe as houses. You know, the only thing you got to worry about is some. Is someone jamming their brakes on or dropping a water bottle in front of you? Whereas yeah. I ride around here in Perth and, you know, if you're not being actively targeted, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's the, the road standards anyway, or there's the yeah. fact that you've got to, you know, you don't realize how sport you are in Dubai when you don't have to stop for a set of traffic lights for yeah. 200k. Yeah. But you're right to limit the danger as much as possible. And, it, and, you know, I do think that riding is one of those sports that is probably less. It can probably help your running more than the other way around. It's harder to help your running by your riding by running than it is to help your running by riding. Oh, well, so the other thing I was going to say about saving time is doing this training in the gym. I use a protocol called the MSP protocol, the Maximum Sustained Power Protocol. It was developed by a guy called Jacques Devore in LA who trained the woman that won the world speed record. Denise Muller is her name, actually. Mm, mm. And she won the world speed record on a bike doing 147.7 miles per hour where they go up to Utah and they have a car and the mm. bike sits behind the car. And she did this protocol for eight months with him. Mm. And and this protocol is instead of going to the gym and just doing biceps and lats and rowing and all these machines at, at high reps, high reps, relatively low weights to make your muscles look big, <laughs> you know, doing hypertrophy uh, process, what this is about is doing basically maximal lift 
efforts on specific exercises for bike riding and running, which mm. are all about your glutes and quads. Most people are most people are already glute, uh, quad dominant, mm. so we want to build the glutes. Most people can't activate their glutes, and that's the power horse of riding and running. Mm. So with this protocol, you know that's why I only ride three times a week because I'm two days a week. I'm spending an hour, ten minutes in the gym doing heavy hex bar deadlifts, Bulgarian lunges, single leg leg presses, which are supported in between by explosive push-ups, ab work, core work, you know, and chin-ups. Mm. I don't do any arms or biceps or mm. triceps mm. or anything. It's all sport-specific. But doing those workouts at really heavy weights, so you're really fatigued, in a strength base and then doing explosive work, doing explosive walking lunges complements your bike riding and running. But people, you know, triath- a lot of triathletes are of this mindset that if it's not swim, ride and run, I'm not going to do it. And if I get busy and my coach has written me a gym program, the last thing I'm going to drop off is a swim, ride or a run. Mm. And part of that problem, I wrote a blog on it, is that most coaching is done in group environments mm. to run a squad and it's very hard to run strength training in a squad environment mm. and then most triathlon coaches aren't necessarily trained in strength training what would be the sort of the hex deadlifts for instance what would be the sort of weight that you'd be doing there and what sort of repetition scheme yeah great okay so first you got to do your warm-up and then you got to do what i call a self-check-in so you do a subset of all the exercises to make sure that you are ready to lift and then what i do is my current weight is my max weight at the moment is 107.5 kilos so i weigh 64. Mm. so i'll do 10 reps at 97.5 eight reps at 97.5 and then i if those two sets i feel good and I feel no niggles, I'll then load to 107.5 and I'll do four sets of six reps mm. as a superset. So I'll do the leg, the hex bar deadlift as a main exercise. Then I'll go and do 12 clap push-ups, maximum chin-ups, then come straight back, do eight. Then I get into the superset, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a fair decent weight for a 60, you know, 65 kilogram guy. That's a fair decent yeah, that's good. Well, I, I'm and, aiming to go to 100 and I want to double my body weight mm, and I, mm. I should be able to do it, but I'll never do I should. Uh, I'll never do one RM max lifts or anything mm. because I think you can injure yourself too much and I'm not a power lifter going for some world record. It's, mm. it's about doing safe exercise where you're working the muscles really hard but with good form and not getting injured. Mm. I mean, I mean, this, the probably the key to moving forward with that is to also to, to be able to train the central nervous system so that it spikes those sort of testosterone, you know, and, and growth of the muscles and, and all that sort of stuff, which you, you're only really going to get from lifting a lot heavier than what you're capable of lifting. Yeah. Or, you know, just things like one of the things that I've seen triathletes do, which I think is quite handy, is just the walkout, the, the walkout with a squat bar on your back. And the weight might be three times what they can actually squat, but they're just standing there holding it, and that that fatigues the central nervous system. Fatigues yeah. triggers. Mm. Be interested to hear from anyone who's got sort of a background in that sort of powerlifting training if they think they know anything that could help triathletes become more. Well, really, you're trying to become more explosive, aren't you? But maintain it. Well, well, yeah, okay. So there's two parts to the. I've written. Uh, I'll happily share a PDF I've written on this whole protocol with the help of Jacques, right? With okay, we'll chuck that in there. Right. Show notes. Yeah. Mm. So there's the power. There's the strength based section, and then there's the power based section of the workout. Mm. So the strength based session is all about low, uh, is heavy weights, calm movements, and slow. Mm. Right. Mm. So that's for me. That's the single leg presses. I do 110 kilos single leg. I can do 340 double leg, four reps, right, which is five and a half times my body weight, mm. <laughs> which is pretty good. So you're doing the legs there, but then when you finish that ex- that workout part, you go on to the explosive part of the workout, which is these explosive walking lunges, mm. and that's where you get your heart rate up. So you combine the strength mm. with the power, and the power comes from doing – I do eight sets of 12 steps – 20 kilos in each hand of explosive lunges where you're coming down low, you're leaning mm. forward, and you're really driving and you've got to do them fast. 
And this is how a cyclist can increase their FTP, right? Absolutely. This is pure. Yeah, this mine's is come in- up 6%. Mine's come up 6% in, I think, about six months. Yeah. Not by riding more, no. by riding less. Yeah. I was riding four times a week. Mm. And it was too much, so I asked my coach, because I have a coach as well, to cut one of the rides out and I've spent more time in the gym mm. and my FTP's come up about 6%. Yeah, I mean, I I know that for a fact because I, I did – I stopped triathlon and then started doing powerlifting and, and cross, CrossFit as well at the same time. Then I got back on the bike and checked my FTP over a, an hour's test. So it wasn't – I wasn't doing a 20-minute, you know, adjunct. It was like the whole thing. And my FTP had gone up, so it's got nothing to do with my and my fitness was lower. There's no doubt that my fitness was lower, but my fitness was still good enough that I could do an FTP. And what that means is that I don't have to use as much of my fitness on the bike. That makes sense, doesn't it? So I can I can ride. I'm more powerful on the bike, so I can ride more efficiently, and and I can keep my heart rate lower for longer. Yeah, and you keep you can hold your maximum sustained power longer. Mm. That's the thing that is the person that wins the race isn't the fastest person that can sprint. It's the person that can hold their maximum power longer because people fatigue in the mm. back end. Yeah, unless you're looking at the world class triathletes, and then it comes yeah. down to then yeah. then the winners coming down to what bloody chain lube they're using or up here you know. and we're not we're not we're not that's the thing is you know we're not world-class athletes no. mm. we're normal people that want to be i think people have got to decide do they want to be healthy or do they want to be fit or do they want to be both because it's a challenge to be both yeah i mean I'm, I'm quite happy now to be i'm going into this next race happy to be slower because i'm i'm you know the whole oh, and I am so competitive too, by the way. So for me, it's just I'm happy to get to go into it slower and just go through the race to do the race and not compete against anyone else except just finish it. Um, whereas previously, it was like everyone around me is an enemy, and that that can bring you unstuck as a triathlete. I think if you look yeah, at people, yeah, you know, especially at our, and we're not, you know, it's only bragging rights, really. Yeah. So the reason you and I sort of got got together was I made a comment about coffee. <laughs> And um, how I thought it was one of the best performance-enhancing bloody drugs on the market, and you sort of challenged me not to to drink it, which of course is ludicrous. But I'm happy. I'm happy to hear about your experiences with with caffeine and and why you've gone away from it. Actually, yeah. Okay. Well, I sort of I've sort of gone away from it. I've never drunk coffee mm. ever, but I have a bit of an addiction to tea, mm. and I've had to moderate that because. In, you know, in the time we've got left on the call, maybe we talk a bit about this as you've as you suggested because I think it's an important thing is that um, if we've had adrenal fatigue and if, if, you don't, if people don't know what your adrenal glands are, you should go and look them up because doctors won't talk to you about them because they don't know how to diagnose adrenal fatigue and it's not a recognised medical condition, but your adrenal glands sit on top of your kidneys and they're like the the sensor that's out there looking for the enemy to come, right, the ground Mm. sensor or whatever it is. And when danger's coming to our body, our adrenal glands call our body into action. And often those adrenals are overworked. So I have adrenal fatigue. My adrenals need stimulation. I actually need to use a cream to stimulate my adrenals before I train because they're chronically, they had been chronically stressed over years and years of stress and being in the army and training at really high heart rates Mm. because our body doesn't know that it's not the saber-toothed tiger coming to us when our heart rate is going up. They think our body reacts as though we're going to die. So whether we're training in a really high heart rate or we have some arsehole being a prick to us or we're having an argument with someone or we're stuck in the traffic Anytime we get stressed, our body thinks we're going to be in a life or death situation. It doesn't understand that we're just responding to some idiot on a text message or mm. some guy in a car's beeping at us. It's, that's not a life and death situation, but our body reacts like that. So most of us have some sort of adrenal fatigue, I would suggest, on your, unless you're a very, very calm person. And we have to protect our adrenal glands because they're like the last layer of defense to our body and if they're not working properly our body can't react when we actually are in a threat position or situation so what caffeine does cutting a long story short is caffeine 
causes more stress to the adrenals because caffeine is there to raise cortisol and get us you know, excited. That's why bike riders, you know, bike riders say, oh, I've got to have a coffee to get my heart rate up. You heard how many times you heard that, mm-hmm. right? So people take coffee or caffeine and Red Bull as a stimulant to get more stimulated. But if our adrenals are exhausted and they can't cope, they need to be calmer. You know, they need to be calmer. So coffee can actually negatively affect our performance Mm. in a range of areas. But the other thing is I go back to that analogy of a Honda Civic or a Mustang. Why do we have to raise our heart rate Mm. when we're going on a social ride? Mm. No, it makes makes sense and I understand what you're saying. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of guys our age, so I'm 45, you're 52, a lot of guys in our sort of two age groups racing, a lot of those guys have adrenal fatigue or their pituitary glands are bloody wrecked. Yeah, and, I had a pituitary tumour taken out yeah, three right. years ago. And and rather than, you know, go to the gym and or have, you know, have a lifestyle conducive to maintaining it and being gentler on their bodies, they go for hormone replacement therapy, which then completely changes the playing field in, in the races anyway. So, you know, things that I've noticed you know, in that disposable income when they can go to a doctor and they can, and they can pay for it. Yeah, I think, you, I think you're right with as far as, you know, the whole how caffeine affects you. I mean, I notice it on my, on my rides myself, you know, now you've got caffeine-flavoured blooming goo sachets as well, which is interesting. And I, you know, whether or not people take on those calories and understand that it's not just the calories, they're taking a stimulant as well. Um, yeah. So what, what about nutrition for yourself? I approach nutrition with uh, approaches low carb, right? So mm. I was 80 kilos five years ago. I'm now 64. I totally changed the way I ate after realizing that what I call conventional stupidity wasn't working for me. Mm. You can, I'll give you a link to a blog that you can talk about or post for listeners. It's called Time to Get a Divorce, and it was all about my divorce from my addiction to carbs. Mm. So I, I coach people in this method now, people, athletes, diabetics, to change their life by realising that they don't have to eat bread, they don't have to eat pasta, they don't have to eat cereal, and that sugar is the thing that causes cancer, causes obesity, and it's all about, you know, controlling the amount of insulin you have in your body. And when you're eating all of those high carbohydrate foods that we're told we have to eat as an athlete, mm. you get sick and your body composition isn't optimal. So, you know, I've got 15.1% body fat. My body composition's been fine. I'm running faster and racing much faster than I did when I was a carboholic. But the, the biggest change is making the realisation that if what you're doing isn't working for you, maybe you're doing the wrong thing. Mm. (laughs) And that the other thing is that being an overweight athlete is bad for your health. Instead of training more and killing myself, they go hand in hand, this whole thing about smashing yourself and then, oh, it's okay, I can go and eat whatever I want. Mm. The calories in, calories out thing is just total bullshit. Mm. It's all about our hormones. So, you know, it's all about the hormonal obesity model, not the calories in, calories out. But you can't get you can't get fat if you don't eat the calories. If the calories aren't going in, your body's not your body's not turning sugar into fat. Or you know, I mean, you can't you you will starve, right? Yeah, well, I I don't count calories with anyone I work with. Mm. All we count is the carbs, right? And what you find is everyone's body has a natural mm. level of carbs it can tolerate mm. based on their level of carbohydrate tolerance or or whether they're mm. you know insulin resistant or not or insulin sensitive so you get people that can eat so much food who are skinny mm. great they're not insulin resistant mm. you get someone else that has you know a couple of bits of bread which is you know 50 grams of carbs and they put on a kilo because every this gram is me. of carb requires <laughs> yeah. five grams of yeah. water right so so you asked me about my approach mm. my approach was i was fat mm. i was running 70 k's a week i was injured Run, I stopped how I was eating. I changed to low carb. I've lost all that weight. I'm never hungry. I eat maybe twice a day, three times a day. I eat vegetables for breakfast with meat and eggs. I might not eat for eight hours. It's the best thing I've ever done and I've coached mm. people to do it. And mm. 
they've got to be ready for it. I'm not interested in trying to convince people they need to do it. That's mm. not my problem. If someone comes to me and says, I want to get my body in a better shape, I'm feeling fatigued, I'm tired, it's time for a change, I'll work with them. I don't, I don't, if people argue with me, I don't care. It's like, okay, fine, then go and do whatever works for you. I'm not here to have an argument. I don't, mm. I don't want stress, man. Mm. It's like, you know. So yeah. if, but you've got to, sometimes you've got to train low, race high. Mm. So I, I hate it when people say, I don't eat carbs. That's bullshit. There's carbs in broccoli. There's carbs in cauliflower. Yeah. You, you need carbs, but you don't need processed shit out of a packet. Mm. Pasta, bread, rice, and cereal are processed foods. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah, and they're full of gluten. Yeah, the best the best I've ever felt was when I went started to eat, you know, the, I hate using the term paleo diet, but when I was eating of the principles of the paleo diet, so I was eating a lot more meat, eggs, fish, vegetables, you know, stuff like that, salad. No, And, and you would change, mentally change the way you look at food as you walk into a service station or something. You look around going, God, there's no food in here. In any of these aisles, it's just all packaged rubbish. Well, that's exactly right. Mm. It's Muppet food. Yeah, exactly. But I still, you know, I, you know, I still stand by the fact that you, you know you can't get fat if you if you're watching your, your calories. And I, and I, I know what you're saying as well. You're saying, you know, it's about the quality and, and the hormonal responses. And 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 I'm agreeing with you, but I'm also saying that people, you know, I, I I really get the shits when I hear people going, oh yeah, but I've got a hormonal condition, so I just get fat. No, you don't just get fat because you've got a hormonal condition. You get fat because you eat too much shit like just stop eating the crap you know well, it's yeah, cal- yeah. it's still you're still eating too many calories you know and 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 things like my fitness power where people can track what they're what they're shoving in their gob you know is a good way to see their mental disposition as well it's like you're you're an eater you know you you like to feel good so you go and eat and you don't even know you're doing it yeah, well, I use a tool that we coach on called the Real Meal Revolution, and that has recipes, it has a meal tracking system, so I can actually see what all my athletes and people I'm coaching are eating mm. every day. Mm. And but it, but that is all based on macros and carbs, fat and protein. It doesn't take into account calories in, calories out, because that's what I was doing. Mm. Like I was on a I was on a calorie restricted diet. For- yeah, but a calorie is not a calorie either. That's the other oh, no, thing. I yeah. was paying two hundred bucks an hour for this woman to help me mm. stay stay fat, and I had to track everything I ate. I had to track how many kilojoules I was expending on my garment. Mm. She was looking at all that and telling me, "Well, you have to eat less fat. No, you're fat." So what an idiot! I have a big thing about mm. the whole calorie thing, and well, I, I heard a scientist say just recently, "We know more about the cosmos than what we do about diet." Because every single person is so different when it comes to the sensitivities to certain foods, or you know, or what what a what a calorie will do for one person won't for another. What a certain sugar will do to one person will do something different to another person. Whereas the the, the rules of the, the cosmos and and you know are, are easier to understand. Yeah, well, it's very bio. bio our own biology is so different. So some people can tolerate dairy. Some people have explosive bowel movements when they have dairy. I, I ask people and ask your listeners to ask themselves to be more aware of what they feel like when they eat. So mm. if they eat a food and they get bloated, actually have the understanding that that is your body telling you something. Like it's not normal. Mm. Or if they get constipated, okay, What's that about? Because it's not normal to be constipated. So, yeah, the simplest advice for free I'd give someone is get a sheet of paper. Mm. Actually, during a day or two or three days, write down what time you eat, what you eat, Mm. when you have a crap, how you feel, how Mm. is your energy, Mm. how much water are you drinking, how much coffee you're having, and, you know, what you do and what how you feel, and you will learn about what is working for you or what's not. You know, I knew I knew eating the jalapenos last night wasn't going to work for me, and I've had that reaffirmation today. So yeah, you're right. So yeah, we, yeah, we're very smart people, but sometimes we can be very dumb as well. We just accept we accept normality and being normal, in line with your ethos about uh, helping elite people. Being normal isn't acceptable, and being normal isn't healthy. That's what I say. No, it's true. Yeah, no, there's a risk. There's a risk to that, and I think, you know, I can't, I can't help but feel that people's diets are ninety percent of the problem. 
and diet is so linked up to mental well-being as well and and there's proof that the gut is the second brain of the body and inflammation is the thing i mean you need to be able to cut out inflammation if you don't want you know if you want to make yourself less susceptible to cancer and inflammation is caused by certain foods to certain people and in most cases sugar to everyone yeah, food and stress. So yeah. food and new f- lifestyle, which revolves around choices we make with nutrition. Mm. I never use the word diet. Nutrition and the stress we place ourselves under or we allow ourselves to be exposed to. To me, they're the two yeah, environmental factors and self-stress. Though, so if we can manage stress and nutrition, and there's no reason why we can't control nutrition because it's a choice we make, we can be healthier. And that's a key thing. I say to people, exercise is good for mental health and being strong. So when I get all these people that say, I want you to personal train because I want to lose weight, I say, well, I'm not your trainer. Mm. And they go, what do you mean? I'm like, you got to eat right first. And I say, if you think running and training is the thing that's going to make you lose weight when you're already overweight and you're eating shit, then you need to change the way you think. Mm. I, t- I like to associate because what happens is people then start saying, here's what I've got is I've got people that start saying they've been eating really well, they've lost all this weight, and then they start to not lose weight. And the first thing they say is they don't, they say, oh, well, I haven't trained as much this week. And I'm like, stop, mm. don't associate. The reason you haven't lost weight is either you haven't fasted wow. or, yeah. or you haven't tracked your food. That's a revelation. You know, don't start thinking like that because it's fucking bullshit. Tra- so training, training's got nothing to do with. Got it? Yeah. So, so it is the it is the diet. It is or the lack of the the intermittent fasting or. Yeah. Have you seen Sean Baker, the US doctor who who's touting the carnivore diet? I've heard of him, but I'm not big on that approach. I think we need to eat vegetables. Sure. Some amazing research that he's done though, which is well worth understanding it and you know for people listening understanding and applying it and still still eating the vegetables and, and salads and stuff like that but the yeah. just the fact the fact that he's taking on so many people you know the vegan sort of movement and and the like and about some of the false claims about meat producing uh, cancer yeah it's really interesting some interesting things to read there I'm, I'm not a nutritionist not a dietitian i'm not saying it's the way to go but it's some interesting things to read the other side of the argument and debate mm. Yeah, I, th- I think we eat too much meat. Like mm. Men typically eat 300-gram steaks, and that's far too much. We should be having, instead of buying a steak, that, you know, we should spend less, spend the same amount on meat but get higher quality. Why, why is it, why is it um, playing devil's advocate here? What, yeah. Why wouldn't a kilogram of meat be acceptable? Like, w- well, what? If you're trying to lose weight, excess mm. protein converts to glucose. Mm, okay. So a ki- and I'm not going to get into numbers, mm. but my my the way I work with people is we should be having if we're trying to lose weight, right? Mm. We should be having about 120 grams of grass fed, mm. highest quality meat, you, and it might cost 40 bucks a kilo, right? Mm. Mm. So I'd say instead of spending 40 dollars on a 300 gram steak with a few vegetables, mm. tiny server vegetables. You have a beautiful 120 thick, fatty, grass-fed steak that costs you the same, and you have a big plate of vegetables. Mm. Right? Okay. Because excess protein converts to glucose. Mm. So I see it all the time. People that I work with have big steaks. They're putting it in on the tracker, and they don't lose weight that week. Mm. As soon as they cut the steak down and have more vegetables, they start losing weight. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no worries. I'll take that on notice and, and have a play we around with it. Grass-fed meat, mm. grass-fed organic meat. And chicken? Oh, uh, yeah, and chicken with fat. But people eat too much chicken as well. Mm. They come away, they come, gym bunnies come in and say, oh, all the Muppet PTs say you've got to eat lean chicken. Well, chicken has a lot more protein in it and less fat than lamb. So I did the macros yesterday with a client I was showing, and he was like, wow, I didn't realise. I said, here's, here's lamb, his beef, his fish, his chicken, and there's a massive difference in the levels of protein and fat. Mm. So some people don't like eating lamb. We eat a lot of lamb because it has a high level of fat and less protein. What sort of the sort of the problem I've got with lamb is that anything fatty, the beast is, is capturing all of its disease and everything like that inside the fats. Like that's what 
you know, it's a, it's a good depository for, for those sort of things. So you, you, you're ingesting that, I would assume? Maybe I'm way off a mark there. But. Well, we try and only buy our meat from a butcher where we know they have the farm, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. We even go to the extent sometimes of going out to the farms and looking because yeah. we're near the Yarra Valley. So we can go out to the farm where the animals are and they're slaughtered at the farm and we know they're grass-fed and they're mm. not feedlot cattle, mm. you know. What's the most important piece of training advice that you've got for any sort of 40-year-old guys and girls listening into this that want to that want to get into triathlon? Research math training and do math training and don't do circuit or um, group fitness classes that aren't specific to your sport. Get in and understand how to lift heavy weights working on single leg work. Okay. Running, running is a single leg sport. <laughs> I love it. All right, man. Hey, thanks, Andre. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Break, break, all call signs. This is Yankee Alpha from the Warrior U podcast. I need your immediate assistance in sector 300. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash warrior U. I say again, visit www.patreon.com forward slash warrior U. I spell Patreon, Papa, Alpha, Tango, Romeo, Echo, Oscar, November. You can pledge $1 a month or much more to also receive some great rewards. Save this call sign from imminent defeat. Yankee Alpha, out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.